Hello. Oh, wait. You'll never see me with my mask on. So I'm taking it off because you can't hear me. In case you can't read it, this mask does in fact helpfully say, don't panic on it. The illustration is a joke from Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And when I saw this design available on a mask, it just seemed like the thing for the moment that we're in. And last week I wore this mask on my weekly grocery visit and the employee who was bagging my groceries looked at my mask, laughed from behind her own and said, if only it were that easy. And I smiled big enough so that she could see it in my eyes above my mask. And I said, well, I thought that if by wearing it, if even one person was comforted, found it funny, got the joke, then I'd be helping. And then the woman started talking about her own anxiety disorder and her panic attacks. She figured out a few years ago, she said, that it's because she had a disruptive move from another country when she was a child. And while she'd worked hard to understand why her family had needed to move, the after effects of that massive childhood change stuck with her for a long time. I don't know why I'm telling you all of this, she said after a bit of a monologue. It's okay, I said. You're describing a really completely appropriate response to a huge change. It makes sense. She paused. Sure, it makes sense when I think about my childhood, but having panic attacks now? I smiled again and I gestured at the plexiglass barrier between us. I think it's also not an unreasonable reaction to anything in the world right now. And we both nodded. She finished packing up my groceries and I rolled my cart away as we wished one another well. And this conversation came to mind this week when I read a beautiful new prayer written by my colleague, the Reverend Victoria Safford of White Bear Unitarian Universalist Church in the suburbs of St. Paul, Minnesota. I'd like to share a portion of it with you now. It did not occur to us in March when we shut down, not really, not completely. It did not occur to us in spring when COVID came with crocuses and robins. It did not occur to us in March when we shut down heading into summertime and light that now on this side of the year's wide arc, we'd be sliding toward December, slipping lonely into January shadows and the endless months of ice. This is a different equinox ahead. Don't be afraid, we've got this, we can do it. Gather your friendships as squirrels gather walnuts now and corn cobs. Lay in your provisions of love. Bring in the harvest of relatives far flung. Click on the links, say yes to the call, even when you're weary, wary, and uncertain. Trade like the goldfinch, your bright yellow feathers for layers of warmth we'll still see you shining. You won't be forgotten. You cannot be lost. Don't be afraid now. You've got this. We've got you. Even when you are weary, wary, and uncertain. As Nicole, as Ms. Nicole pointed out in Hope, we all have a lot of big emotions. It's a big world and sometimes those big emotions are called for and sometimes they come even when they're not called. 
And part of what we do in community is to hold those emotions with each other. Do our best not to let anyone get lost. I like to remind myself that I would have lived that several thousand years ago, I would have known that sometimes when the grasses rustle, it's because there's an apex predator behind them feeling a bit peckish. I would have known not to step on the wobbly rock in the river. And I definitely would not have tried any unknown berries that Thagmok brought back from foraging. I would have lived. My therapist once told me that anxiety disorders are partly hereditary and partly environmental. To trigger an anxiety disorder, there needs to be a precipitating factor. For me, that light switch activated when I was around 13. A close friend died from leukemia. It was my first big death, and she was one of my peers, another tween like me. Right around the same time, the economy crashed. My dad was in construction, and my family lost everything. The combination of death and disaster right as I was physically transforming into a teenager was more than enough to fundamentally alter the way my brain works. To live with anxiety is to live with a cold fear deep in your belly. It's a constant waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's a paranoia that the good things and kind people in your life are just veils and that they only barely cover a darker truth. You see, Without those rustling bushes and poisoned berries, an anxiety disorder like mine latches onto stimuli that isn't threatening. Without visceral threats, normal parts of life take on a menacing aspect and trigger fear. The imagined consequences of actions are out of proportion, so a small social misstep will cause me to fear losing my friends forever. Sometimes just getting in the car or watching my partner leave for work is difficult. Worst case scenarios and their accompanying fears play across my mind's eye. I sometimes wonder what it would be like to be neurotypical, to have a brain that doesn't see quite so many things as threatening. I wonder what it would be like to not be afraid all the time. But to live with anxiety is also to live with an uncomfortable superpower. It's not all bad. My physical vision is not great anymore. I need glasses to see things that are further away. However, even without glasses, my ability to detect movement and analyze shapes is unusually good. This has saved my dog and I from encountering a skunk late at night on more than one occasion. I also see dangerous patterns in traffic before they happen, and I've avoided collisions multiple times due to my involuntary warning system. I'm a little jumpy, but I've taken more good than harm from that. My higher levels of anxiety also translates to a certain level of quality control. Even when I'm making something for fun as a hobby, there's a level of quality I'm unwilling to compromise on. So when I submit something for work or give something as a gift, it's been gone over many, many times. The weird side effect of that anxiety-fueled perfectionism is I tend to be effective in many areas of life. Fear is a powerful motivator, and when I'm not locked in or frozen with it, it keeps me on my toes. There are ways to make anxiety more manageable. You see, what makes us anxious varies from person to person, but it is generally consistent on an individual level. Something that makes you anxious today will also do so a week from now. Self-study and anxiety tracking can teach you how to manage it. Once you know what specifically makes you anxious, you can start to shape your life in ways that reduce anxiety-causing stimuli. The answer to what makes you anxious isn't just the news. 
Like that's an easy answer, but it's not the whole picture. We need to consider timing. How much news can you read or watch before you feel anxious? Five minutes? 20? What time of day is it when the anxiety is worse? If you read the news in the morning, does it trigger more or less anxiety than in the evening? What kinds of articles, specifically, set off anxiety? When I was first in therapy for my anxiety disorder, my therapist had me start tracking. Every time I felt anxious, I wrote down what was happening, and I gave my anxiety a number level from 1 to 10, with 10 being a panic attack and 1 being mild uneasiness. I did this for two weeks just to observe what my brain was doing and start to get a baseline. For example, one of the things that will set off a panic cycle for me is running late. I'm that annoying party guest that shows up exactly on time and makes awkward small talk until all of the other guests arrive. The thing is, that mild social discomfort is preferable to how I feel if I am running late. I would rather sit in my car for 15 minutes upon arriving at my destination than run late. So. Since I know running late is a trigger, I always allow more time for travel. I know that certain kinds of conflict can trigger my anxiety. My partner and I have a designated check-in time when we talk over challenges we're facing. It's a time where we specifically focus on helping each other, listening, and being open to constructive criticism. This means that if my partner brings up a behavior of mine that is causing them distress, I'm in a calm place so that I can hear them clearly and not perceive their words as a threat. Understanding the exact triggers that make you anxious is the first step to living with less fear. To be human is to be aware of mortality, of all the pitfalls living can expose us to. Anxiety is natural. Anxiety is my brain's way of trying to protect me. Remember the rustling of the grasses? My brain is trying to save my life. Right now, one of my favorite tools for managing my anxiety is to thank it. Really, I say thank you. Thank you for trying to protect me. I know you're frightened, and I understand why. But I've got this, and we are going to be okay. So we are living through highly emotional times. The next presidential election is 50 days away. The West Coast is on fire and we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And that's, that's only the beginning really of a much longer list we could make of current emotional triggers. There's so many reasons right now to feel mad, sad, afraid, and amidst it all, Things to be happy about and, and grateful for as well. So on this emotional roller coaster on which we all find ourselves, I want to invite us to spend just a little time this morning with the work of Carla McLaren, whose work on emotional intelligence has been really helpful to me at various points over the years as a reference. Uh, a decade ago, she published her first book. Some of you may be familiar with it, The Language of Emotions, What Your Feelings are trying to tell you. And this year, given the high anxiety in the world, she published a well-timed sequel titled Embracing Anxiety, How to X Access the Genius of This Vital Emotion. One aspect of her system that I find particularly clarifying is that she really underscores that emotions in themselves are neither positive nor negative. And 
I don't know about you, but that's, that's not the approach to emotions that I was raised with. Now that's sort of, you saw in the story, that's more of an approach that like we can learn. Like Nicole gave a great example of a book that can help us learn to be more emotionally intelligent. But the general sense I got in my childhood is that happiness is good and anger, fear, and sadness are bad. McLaren, in contrast, challenges us to view all emotions on a more level playing field. Rather than labeling some emotions as negative and others as positive, she wants us to notice that all emotions are bringing energy and information forward that we might, without them, be unaware of. Whatever we're feeling, it's trying to tell us something. And as we become more skilled in understanding the language of emotions, uh, we can learn to work with that energy and information that emotions are communicating. Now, McLaren's book goes into detail on 16 different clusters of emotions. I'm barely going to scratch the surface this morning, but if this um, sermon leaves you curious to learn more, um, certainly check out her books. For now, I'll share some about working with anger and anxiety, two dominant emotions in our society at the moment. And I'll start with a story. As I do so, I invite you to recall, have any similar incidents happened to you that have made you feel angry or anxious um, recently? And then as I describe some of the tools that I've been working with, you can see if they might work for you. So a few weeks ago, I was invited to be part of planning a physically distanced outdoor gathering. In case you're wondering, the story doesn't involve anyone at UUCF. It's not about any of you, so don't worry. You know, don't panic, like Jen's mask said. As the emails started going back and forth about potentially how to set guidelines in place to gather as safely as possible during a pandemic, it quickly became apparent, at least to me, that one of the people involved in planning was not, at least in my judgment, taking pandemic precautions seriously. And after that person made multiple suggestions that seemed increasingly unsafe to me, I found myself getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And one response could have been to listen to some of the messages I received in childhood, that anger is a bad emotion. And if I'd gone that route, I might have stuffed down my anger, I might have ignored what my emotions were trying to tell me, and I might have ended up putting others at risk, including myself. What I actually did at first was air in the opposite direction. I wrote an angry email reply, and that actually ended up shifting the focus away from the person that was making unsafe suggestions to me being mean. So that's not great. After walking away from my computer, taking some deep breaths, letting a little time pass, I was able to notice, you know, it's really not my anger that's the problem. Now, the way I unskillfully allowed my anger to boil over into a hurtful email, that was a problem, so I apologized for that. But dismissing my anger would have also been wrong. My anger was trying to tell me something important. It was saying, your boundaries are being violated. You need to draw a line, which I was eventually able to do in a more skillful and kind way. That's the sort of shift that Carla McLaren's work on the language of emotions is all about. Instead of either repressing our emotions, ignoring them, or being carried away by them, she invites us to learn to interpret what is this emotion trying to tell me. Get curious. Specifically in regard to anger, one question that can be really helpful to ask is what am I feeling like I need to protect? If you felt really angry about something recently, try asking yourself that question. 
in regard to that situation that's making you angry, what am I feeling like I need to protect? In my case, my anger was telling me to protect myself and others during a pandemic. Now, to be clear, sometimes you can change people's mind with anger. Usually it just causes them to dig in deeper, and that's exactly what happened in this situation. I did not change the other person's mind by lashing out at them, even though I still think I was right about proper pandemic precautions and that they were wrong. But it did help when I got really clear about what my boundaries are, what I needed to feel safe. And as soon as I did that, um, did what I needed to do to feel safe and protected, my anger abated. So if you find yourself angry in the coming days, I invite you to ask yourself, what am I feeling like I need to protect? Exploring that question may give you more clarity about what is triggering your anger or how you might set a boundary to feel safer. May we feel safe and protected and do what we need to do to make that happen. Our emotions really have an intelligence if we're willing to stop and listen. Our bodies hold deep wisdom as well, but I'll have to save that kind of embodied wisdom for a future sermon. For now, having spent a little time talking about anger, I want to be sure to get to anxiety since I know we're also living through a highly anxious time. Although I was previously familiar with McLaren's work on the language of emotions, I was still intrigued when I saw her newest book was about the genius of anxiety. I thought to myself when I saw that title, I was like, that's a bold choice, the genius of anxiety. As with anger, it can be all too easy to experience anger solely as a negative emotion to be gotten rid of. But remember McLaren's foundational point, emotions are neither good nor bad. Rather, all emotions bring energy and information forward that we can learn to work with and interpret in increasingly skillful ways. Uh, Irene gave us some good examples of that earlier. With anger, we spent some time exploring how the most skillful question to ask is often, what am I feeling like I need to protect? With anxiety, McLaren suggests that the most skillful question to ask is often, what truly needs to get done? Anxiety is often triggered by something left undone, or one of the jokes I sometimes make about anxiety is like, it's not paranoid if they really are out to get you, right? So like, what do you then do about it? What truly needs to get done can help us discern an action that might help us resolve or at least lower our anxiety. Along these lines, one of the most counterintuitive suggestions McLaren makes is to actually befriend our anxiety. And again, Irene talked some about this as well, to experiment with being grateful for what this emotion is trying to tell us. I'll, I'll give you another example. I typically carve out Friday on my schedule to write my sermons. That's close enough to Sunday morning that I can feel that anxiety starting to rise, that I need something to say to you come Sunday morning. And here's where the gratitude can come in. That anxiety gives me motivation and focus that's more difficult to cultivate earlier in the week. Now, don't get me wrong. I do have some colleagues who get up on Sunday morning to write. I, I don't get up at 5 a.m. to start writing my sermon. I, at that point, my anxiety would be sky high. Our relationship to anxiety, it's more like a dance. And from McLaren's point of view, whenever anxiety helps us meet deadlines and complete projects, Try saying, oh, thank you, anxiety, to develop a friendlier relationship with it. Now, again, what I'm talking about here is learning to dance with low-level or maybe medium-level anxiety. I'm not 
talking about super high level anxiety or panic. Though I'll say, conversely, a few weeks ago, I found out I had neglected to change the batteries in one of our fire alarms, and it started beeping at 3 a.m. That caused a little panic um, for me. Uh, but again, from a certain point of view, that's also the sort of anxiety I'm ultimately grateful for. If there had been an actual fire, panic would have been an appropriate emotion. My emotions telling me, act now. In McLaren's words, panic can actually be a marvelous and life-saving emotion that gives you the energy you need to fight or flee or freeze when your life is in danger. I should hasten to add that McLaren's work is focused on the language of emotions themselves. Her work, it's not about emotions mixed in with mental illness or trauma or neurological conditions, all of which are best addressed with therapists or other mental health professionals, and I'm glad to refer anyone who may benefit from that. But for now, keeping our focus just on anxiety, here's three quick practices that McLaren recommends for her much longer list of anxiety-reducing activities, or she's got long lists of things you can do for working with all manner of emotions. One of the most effective tools for working with anxiety is something many of you may already do. It's, it's just making a list. If you let a worry float around in your head without doing anything about it, it tends to just keep generating anxiety. But if you write that task down, especially if you schedule it on a calendar of when you're specifically going to do something about it, you'll often notice an immediate release of the anxiety around it. A second helpful practice is similar to the sermon I did on meditation and breathing about two weeks ago. Be here now. If you're finding yourself stuck in the past, replaying memories in your head, or stuck in the future, anticipating potential negative experiences to come, try taking a deep breath in and out and opening yourself in the present moment. Ground yourself in the specificity of what's actually happening right now, not what did happen or what might happen, but what's really happening. If you're, try it right now. If you're sitting in a chair, Feel the chair supporting you. Feel your chest rising and falling as you breathe. Notice the other sights and smells and sounds and tastes in this actual present moment. Shifting your attention to be here now can relieve the anxiety triggered by getting caught up in the past or the future. As the saying goes, you don't have to believe everything you think. I also wanted to address a strategy for dealing with anxiety about the upcoming presidential election that's less than two months away. As I do so, keep in mind that core question that McLaren invites us to ask anytime we feel anxiety rising. What truly needs to get done? If you're feeling anxious about the election, I appreciate the advice of the meditation teacher, Ethan Nickturn, who said that even though he is a professional meditation teacher, it's what he does all the time, he says that for him, meditation and yoga are actually third and fourth on the list of what he recommends to work with your anxiety this fall. He said number one is volunteer on an election campaign. Number two is unhook from any media source that covers the election like a sporting event and thus directly profits from your anxiety, from keeping you hooked and going back. For me, this advice really works. If I spend time worrying about the election, my anxiety just keeps increasing. And if I spend too much time following the ups and downs of any daily news cycle, again, my anxiety just increases. But I've felt better 
and noticed my anxiety markedly decrease every time I've helped get out the vote by sending an email, writing a letter, making a phone call. If you're feeling anxious, ask yourself what truly needs to get done right now. And again, if you're not sure how to get started, go to our homepage, frederickuu.org, or Google UU the Vote. And we've got a link right there of ways to get involved. For now, as I turn to my conclusion, I'll sh also share with you a saying I often hear in meditation circles about how to work with emotions that come up during meditation. What we resist persists, but what we can feel, we can heal. In that spirit, let me encourage you that it can really help, and Nicole talked about this, to name the emotional elephant in the room. Just name what you're feeling, what others may be feeling. Be honest about what you're feeling. Open yourself to discerning the messages that our emotions are trying to teach us. And as we prepare to sing our hymn of response, may we hold in our heart all that can be healed if we're willing to listen to our own deepest self. We're willing to take the risk of sharing what we feel with each other.